Good afternoon. I don't want to stand in the light. That's too much light. I can't see you. Uh, welcome to this afternoon's industry talk. Sounds real. Uh, my name is Adriek Vernieuwijs. I'm head of ITRA Industry. And I'm very pleased that we have such a great panel of sound designers here this afternoon because um, we've been talking a lot in the, uh, in the office while we were compiling this program on sound and, and how uh, undervalued and how often it's not really recognized how important sound is for the film. And these gentlemen sitting over there, they will uh, talk you through uh, all their tricks and their secrets uh, and what sound can do for films. Um, I want to introduce uh, your moderator for today, Nicholas Rappo. Please. Thank you, passing the baton. Um, well, thank you everyone for coming to this talk. Uh, this is part of the uh, industry talk series and the Sounds Real uh, series, which I encourage you to come to. We'll be showing movies, um, documentaries with sound designers talking after them. And it's, it, we already had one last night and it's just been really interesting because it's not a topic that a lot of people are used to thinking about or even aware of as an art form. Uh, so we're very fortunate to have people uh, talk about it. Um, and so today we're gonna talk some more uh, about it. We'll have three sound designers giving uh, presentations um, and about particular subjects um, about uh, the emotion and the authenticity and the future of sound. Uh, so you'll get a good overview. Uh, and yeah, as, as, you know, as we saw last night, uh, last night we screened an un uh, The Unmistaken Child and uh, tonight we'll be showing uh, Man Falling, which is a documentary about um, a famous painter who has more or less lost his sense of sight so it's a documentary where sound design was pretty crucial in getting inside his headspace. Uh, and tomorrow we'll have The Fog of War, um, the Errol Morris movie, uh, also um, very interesting in terms of sound design. So um, what I'm going to do now is just introduce uh, our wonderful presenters for today. Um, first is Larry Sider, who's a director of the School of Sound. He's an edit a film editor and sound designer. Um, he's the head of the uh, Masters Filmmaking and Sound course at Goldsmiths in London. Um, and he's also a visiting tutor at the National Film and Television School. Uh, and he's worked with the Quay brothers. Um, you might know Street of Crocodiles. Um, and also on Patrick Keeler's London, which is just an amazing uh, film essay, or rather essay film. If you haven't seen it, uh, I encourage you to look it up. Um, so uh, first, Larry Sider. Um, and um, I guess I'll introduce everyone um, first. Uh, then we also have uh, Peter Albrechtson, who will be talking about authenticity in sound. Uh, he's a sound designer and music supervisor in Copenhagen. And he's worked on over 100 productions, uh, both features and uh, documentary. Um, and his work has included Queen of Versailles, which is kind of a mind-blowing documentary. If you haven't seen it, you should look it up. And The Visit, um, also um, an interesting film, kind of a, what would you say, a hypothetical uh, documentary about about uh, the future, which is actually going to be screening, or has it already screened? Screening, yeah, you'll be able to see that his work, uh, Q and A, uh, tomorrow night uh, at the I Cinema, um, as part of uh, part of this Sounds Real series. Uh, and last but not least, uh, Michelle Shopping, um, who will be talking about the future of sound, uh, and he's a composer, sound designer, and mixer for both fiction and documentary. 
uh, and he's a trainer uh, at festivals, including Torino Film Lab, and he teaches sound design at the Dutch Film Academy, uh, and his work has included uh, Broken Circle Breakdown, which was a great uh, film that actually, um, I think, won a number of awards a, a few years ago. Um, so, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to stop nattering on and uh, hand the microphone to Larry Sider to, uh, to begin. Hi, and uh, welcome. Uh, thank you to IDFA for inviting us and setting up this really interesting program. It's something um, uh, that I've been going on about for years, sound, and uh, why we don't take it more seriously. Um, but we, we're beginning to, we're beginning to, and meetings like this are a good sign of that. Um, I'm talking about emotion, which is a really interesting topic because it's kind of become topical in the last few years. For, for a long time, we talked about sound in terms of mechanics, technology, techniques, which we still do. But then I think because we began to realize we're doing something quite profound with sound, we wanted to start thinking about what is that? Uh, part of that's because we can hear sound much better than we could 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, going from film photochemical processes for soundtracks to digital. So we can hear more. And that sound is affecting us. And we're beginning to ask, what's it about? Why is it affecting us and how can we use it? Um, so to start with, I'd like to play a very short sound clip. It's a piece called Sail Away by the uh, British uh, documentary radio maker, Piers Plowright. Um, could we have the lights down and just play that clip, please? And it was June, you see, it was a blazing hot June when he died. And I wheeled his bed to the open window upstairs and the sun streamed in on us and we threw back the coverlets and stripped off everything that got brown in the sun as we always did every morning because the nurse came in at eight o'clock. And then the day would become rather hideous, you know medical questions, which were not interesting to either of us. Arthur was not in pain. His spine was broken just between the shoulder blades, so from the breast down, he was paralyzed. He felt no pain. I asked him, are you in pain? And he said, I have never been so comfortable in my life. And I said, and you look so happy. Why should I not be happy? I have music and you to read to me. Why should I not be happy? And on this morning, we looked out at the sky, which was cloudless and brilliant. And Arthur had inserted into his new book of poems, a poem which he, Arthur, said was for me alone. It was by Feng Meng Lu. And it was called Don't Set Sail. 
It's very short. It begins, don't set sail. Tomorrow, the wind may have dropped. And then you can go, and I shan't trouble about you. And on the morning of Arthur's death, there'd been a tremendous gale, a storm in the garden all through the night. And I had flung up the window, and there was the clear sky and not a breath of wind. And I turned and called back to him, Darling, the wind has dropped. And he said, Then I may go, and you shall not trouble about me. I thought my heart would stop. But it was true. It was just like that. Right. Um, that, dare I say, portrays emotion profoundly and effectively. You feel moved. It's a very, very simple piece. It's a voice, and at the beginning, there's an atmosphere in the background. Just the sound of air moving and a few birds. And then about halfway through the piece, you hear her chatting. She's seemingly quite friendly, quite okay, even though her husband has had this accident and is in a bad way. And then halfway through, that atmosphere goes away. And you feel it. You feel something, even if you didn't know that those birds left and the wind is no longer there. You feel something happening. The world empties. You are moved into a different space. And she becomes more intimate, a little slower, um, more poetic. Um, suddenly something is different. We've moved into a different part of the piece. And that's because of the removal of that one sound. And that creates the feeling of emotion. That, that's something you feel. Um, when I teach, when I work professionally, the one question at the bottom of everything I do and my relationship with a director, my relationship with an editor, my relationship with other sound uh, artists that I'm working with, composers, is how does it make you feel? The bottom line. Yes, we have to get all the technical things right. Doors have to sound like doors, cars like cars, people have footsteps. The world has to seem real, believable, authentic, which we'll come up to next in Peter's talk. But it's how does it make you feel? That's the top question. If any of you have read a book called In the Blink of an Eye by Walter Murch, where he talks about editing, he rates the reasons for making a particular cut in the image. And top of that is emotion. He writes it percentages out of 100. Emotion gets 60%. He said it technically it can be wrong. Continuity-wise, it can be wrong. It can be rough in terms of sound, framing differences. But if the emotion works, that's probably a good cut. 
So that's what we're always asking. How does it make you feel? And then you have to ask, well, how do you know when it's working? We always say, yeah, that works. No, that doesn't work. How do you know? I have a very good colleague, a good friend and a colleague who I teach with, an editing tutor, and he talks about goosebumps. I think it's a really perfect way of describing this. He said, you have to, does everybody know what goosebumps are? Goosebumps are those little bumps you get on your skin, a tingling when something happens. It can be the change in temperature, but it can also be a very highly emotional moment when you feel something in you. You understand something that you didn't understand before, or maybe you're just a little bit vulnerable. You're watching a film and suddenly you're being taken to a place that you don't quite, you're not prepared for. And that's the emotion coming through and you feel goosebumps. And he would say, if you make a piece, you should feel goosebumps probably a couple times in that. So we know that it's working. Um, that piece works very effectively, I think, but it's only sound. But that's what sound is doing. That's what we work with with sound. We add things, we take things away. But we create spaces for the audience to inhabit, either psychologically or sonically, geographically. Now, when you add that to a picture, a lot of that would get lost because suddenly you have the picture, which takes a lot of our attention. We are a visual culture. We, are we, are, uh, we fetishize images and objects. So that's where our attention automatically goes. And the effectiveness of that piece, if we were looking at her talking, may not be quite the same unless we provided for it. Unless the way we worked with the images, the way we worked with the images and the sound, provided room for the sound to take us to that other place, to give the time to take us to that other space listening. So, all right, we, we know what sound can do and all three of us who are going to speak know the power of sound and how to do it, but we're always working with images. And not only images, but dialogue, which is kind of the basis of most of the films we work with, dialogue, narration, interviews. So my first point mainly is that uh, to create emotion with sound, it's not just a matter of adding a piece of sound to something and saying, now that's an emotional sound. We put a drone on something, we put a rumble on it. We go, ah, we've got emotion. Everybody's going, oh, what's happening next? That's kind of shortcuts and it's cheap tricks sometimes. Not always, not always. But very often those are just easy ways of creating emotion. Put a piece of music on, you get instant emotion. Doesn't fail. Hire John Williams, you get emotion all the way through your film. It may not be the right one, it may not be the one you want, but you'll get emotion. So what you have to do is work with sound in the editing room with the picture. You have to be thinking of this during the edit. Uh, it's not enough, and I may, be, I may be challenged on this by my colleagues here, but I think the editing process is the start of the soundtrack, and you have to start thinking about how are we going to make space how are we going to give the room and the opportunities to create emotion? Because you can cut a film for information only. I'm sure many of you who make documentaries, you could edit uh, interviews. The interviews themselves may be emotional, but if you wanted to add 
moments where the audience can be taken back a little bit, where they can start reflecting on what you're giving them and form their own ideas, their own thoughts. That needs to be prepared. Uh, Walter Murch, I quote him a lot, talks about the use of music. And he says, um, working on films, if you wait with music, it won't have the same effect as if the music is used in the editing room. He said, you can take any piece of music and put it on a film and it will have an effect. It will affect the audience in some way. But only if that music is worked with the edit, with the picture, is it embedded in the architecture of the film. So scenes can come out of the music, come out of the emotion of the music, rather than it being painted on as, again, a, a gimmick. And I'd say the same thing for sound. You have to start working with that in the editing room. You have to have an idea of where you're going, how you want to make these moments where the audience can, where the audience is, uh, the film is turned over to the audience momentarily. Um, there's a documentary radio maker in Paris that you may know, uh, Kay Mortley. Uh, Australian by birth, but works in Paris. And I heard her talk about this, and she was saying, what are we doing when we make these radio pieces, when we're working with sound? Well, well, what's the point? We make very complicated pieces, very elaborate thoughts go into them, and uh, so on and so forth, production values. And she said, what I think I'm doing is, one, I'm telling the story of my characters, my subject. So I'm introducing the audience to something they don't know about. Okay, that's the information part. But then she said, I'm creating a bubble, a place where that listener can exist on their own with this material. Think about the material, think about the people I'm presenting, the places I'm taking them to. But then at the same time, reflect back on their own lives and have the time to do that. So they're thinking about that, reflecting on their own lives, then taking what they're thinking about and applying it to what they're hearing. So there's this kind of feedback loop going on. And she said, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give them this space to move. It's an interesting word, move, because we talk about being moved. Emotionally, we feel something. But we, it's also that we are moved. We are taken somewhere. We are taken somewhere, like I said, geographically. We are taken psychologically to another place. Um, the other thing to think about, and it applies somewhat to the piece you just heard, is that duration or time affects the way we are moved through sound and sound and image. That sometimes you just need to hear something a bit longer than feels like normal. And as you hear it more, the meaning of it changes, be it a wind, rain, the sound of a city, it takes on new meaning and it takes on a more intense meaning. But you need time for that. And there again is why the edit is where this begins. If you don't allow the time in the edit, then these things become kind of just decoration sometimes. You know, you want the audience to hear a wind come and go and swirl around, but you don't have the time. You've just got a few seconds, so you hear the wind, it comes and it goes and that's it, it's wind rather than something you can almost meditate on. Um, 
Yeah, another thought that came up while I was preparing this, I was reading somebody's paper. Um, some of you may know about research into mirror neurons, which is a fascinating bit of research, neuroscience that's going on, that is going to change the way we think about sound design. In fact, it may put a lot of people out of business. Um, what it is, and these tests have been done on monkeys, that when the monkey hears something, the parts of the brain that indicate that that monkey has actually taken part in that action light up. So it means that even by hearing something, you have the experience of doing it. Which means that a lot of what we do in sound is affecting the audience in ways that we might have hoped for, but we didn't really know happened. So if you see somebody touch somebody's skin, a hand on a hand, and you hear the sound of skin moving on skin, it is almost as if you are touching that person. That part of your brain will light up, will be triggered. Those, part, those neurons think you are actually doing it. Is that emotion? And once you start working with those ideas, does the whole th idea of sound design just become a mechanical trick? We just make our neurons light up. Maybe that's what we're doing. Um, but I think uh, the, uh, what this all comes down to and what all these talks usually come down to is listening and how we listen and how you get your audience to listen. We are not used to listening with intensity deep listening as it's become known. Recently I heard the opera theater director Peter Sellers give a talk and he mentioned that when he was first working in London he had a, um, a, uh, a teacher of sitar. No, take that back. It was a Sufi teacher who was teaching him flute, the oud, and he was teaching him how to listen and they were in a restaurant, a very noisy, busy restaurant. And he said to him, what are, uh, the, what are those people at that table in the corner, what are they talking about? And he said, I, how can you possibly expect me to know that? It's, I, can't hear, I can't even hear any of their voice. And he said, that's what you need to learn how to do. You need to learn how to focus in and to move yourself. Again, this idea of moving from the reality of this space to the reality of their space. All right, so it starts getting kind of spiritual and cosmic. That's okay. It's okay. We could use some of that. Um, but what that means is that as a filmmaker, you have to lead your audience in that way. You have to give them the opportunity to listen with that kind of intensity. To use sound, sound in relation to image, to move realities through your film to take people into a space and then out again, to leave the film with them so they can think about it for a while or move back into the, to the reality of what's happening in the film, happening in a house, happening on the street, in a park, whatever. And that kind of activity, that kind of movement is very exciting. And when that happens, you have, you've got your audience. You've got an audience that is engaged in your film. There are a few techniques. I, I go into this with 
a little bit of hesitation talking about techniques we use to do this because it, it takes something kind of high-minded and brings it down to the reality of, of editing. How am I doing on time? Two minutes, okay. Um, things that we do in the editing room and the sound mix is to take your film and just listen to the soundtrack before you've mixed it. See what you've got. Take the picture away and just listen to the sound. Is it in interesting? Is it engaging? Then take away most of the sound and just play the atmospheres. Are they interesting? Watch the picture without the sound. What are you getting from that and what are you missing by playing the sound with it? What has the sound taken away from? And start getting to understand how these are working together. They're like an organism and they work together sometimes and then they split apart and then they come together. So get an idea of what the sound and the image are doing together. Um, and then the last point is my first one. How does it make you feel? Always come back to that. And it's not a matter of, oh, it kind of made me feel this and that and that, and I thought about this and that. It goes, no, how does it make you feel? One word. Can you pin it down? Can you get your director to pin it down? And you go, when I watched that scene, I felt vulnerable. I felt scared. Okay. And is that the right feeling? And then you'll begin to understand how sound is affecting your audience. Thank you. Okay, uh, and up next, I just want to add, I forgot to mention at the beginning, but we'll, we'll all be getting together up here, um, all of us, not all of you, you should stay up there, and we'll sit up here and talk more about uh, the things that are being brought up. Um, and uh, the, the next talk will be by Peter Albertson about uh, authenticity in film design. Thank you. Um, I also want to thank ITFA for doing this. I think it's such a great initiative. Um, sounds real. I really like that title. Um, and um, when I got the, the mail from the people here at ITFA saying, would you like to be part of Sounds Real? I said, yes, I'd love to. Then they told me, you should talk about authenticity. And I said, oh no, not again. Um, the thing about authenticity is that it can be the worst trap you ever come into as a filmmaker, and it can be the biggest inspiration you can have as a filmmaker. Um, and um, that's really interesting. Um, it has this kind of amazing potential, and it has this terrible potential. And um, I'd like to evaluate on that. Um, the, um, the whole thing about sound for documentaries is that there's often there's this uh, idea that all the sounds you hear in a documentary should be the real sounds. The sounds that were there when the camera was rolling. And um, 
I'm always saying, well, the thing about doing a documentary is that every everything you do, everything, not just the sound do, but the photographer, the director, the p editor, everyone makes choices. The idea of a neutral, authentic event is non-existing. It's something we made up. It doesn't exist. Um, true authenticity. What is what is true? What is authentic? Um, a, um, a friend friend of mine from um, another filmmaker from from Denmark said, um, you know, the only the only difference between fiction films and documentaries is that in fiction films, the actors get paid. And I thought it was like so spot on because it's all about storytelling. It's all about telling a story and at the moment when you decide to tell a specific story, then you made a subjective choice and you're no longer like making reality as something that's objective. And that happens, I mean, that's, that's a process, no matter if you're doing a journalistic documentary with just talking heads, or if you're doing a very, very subjective, abstract, artsy documentary. Um, so, Authenticity doesn't really exist. But then again, in a way it does. What I often talk about or think about when I make movies is something that I call emotional authenticity. And now I'm kind of grabbing the, the, the word out of Larry's mouth in a way, like already kind of going into the emotional part. But I think it's it's important to think about that authenticity is 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 something we and it's an emotional reaction to the sounds and the the visions and the stories and the characters that we experience when we see and hear um, a film. Um, something that I've been doing a lot um, with uh, all the movies I'm, I'm really trying to be part of the process as early as possible. So when Larry is saying the sound is created during the picture editing, I agree, but I also think actually it goes even earlier. It's also a question of being part of the process while the movie is shot while the movie, the the basic ideas for the movie is thought out. So that the important thing is that everyone who's doing the movie are not only looking, but are also listening. Um, that's when I think the, the greatest authenticity happens is that if everyone is very aware and uses their senses then we can actually get a much more 
authentic feeling of what is it like to being in a specific room, in a specific environment, in a specific country. Um, often when you, s when, when a filmmaker starts to work on a film, then um, the director has meetings with the photographer talking about, I mean, on a documentary, maybe you don't do storyboards, but you look at images, you, you talk about, uh, look at this painting, look at this, these uh, pictures, these still pictures, look at these, look at these, look at these, look at these. And what I often feel is that why not do audio research in the same way? Listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. Um, I brought a clip from a movie I did a couple of years ago, which um, takes place in Tanzania. It's about, um, the movie is called White Black Boy, and it's, um, um, the backstory is that in Tanzania, albinos are hunted because the witch doctors in the country are saying that if you have just a small part of an albino on you somehow as a necklace or whatever, then you have, then, uh, well, you don't have eternal life, but you, you don't get ill and also. So there's this kind of manhunt for albinos in Tanzania. And uh, this uh, movie is about a, um, a school for albino kids um, where these kids are brought into the school, which is also like um, a place where they, I mean, there's guards around the school, their parents are not there, they are isolated. Um, so no one comes in to, because they, otherwise they would get killed or get mutilated or all these things. Terrible, terrible things. But the thing was that another, another big issue with albinos um, living in Tanzania is that because of the sun being so strong and they don't have the, the color to kind of, they don't have the resistance so that they, their, their eyesight goes down. And that was something that the director talked about very early on. How do we kind of get that story told? How do we get the feeling of like losing your sight? And then what's happening is that then you, when, when the eyesight goes down, then the, the hearing is, goes up quite often. Um, so we wanted to catch that and, and tell that as part of the story. So all of this was something we discussed uh, in the very beginning of her shoot. Um, we hadn't, there hadn't been any picture editing or anything. And um, um, the director was actually recording sounds herself. So it was just a small, small crew, just her and the photographer. Um, the photographer made sure that instead of shooting these, I mean, shooting the kids with the camera up here, then he was down here. So he was, we, we're seeing the world 
in their height, in the kids' height. And that already, that is a, something that means visually that we're, we're there. Um, but the sound um, should also create this authentic feeling of being albino in that, in that area. Um, this was a, I mean, it was a long period of shooting where the director went down there, shot for a month, went back, came back like four or five months after. Doom, doom. It, uh, the, I think the shooting went on for two and a half years or something, the, the period of time. And um, at the beginning, we started talking about, okay, Peter, when we take like the fourth or the fifth trip, you go down there with us and record sounds and record sounds from the environment and so on. And I thought that was a great idea. I really, really love um, getting hold of sounds from the environment, from the actual environment. It's a big, big part of the emotional authenticity is finding out, okay, how does this environment actually sound? And then you can kind of find out, okay, now you've found out how do they actually sound? Okay, what kind of story do we want to tell with the sounds that's there? So I really wanted to go down there and experience that. But during these couple of years, I had not just one kid, I had two kids. And suddenly, like, going down into a country of witch doctors didn't seem like such a great idea. Um, so I, um, I got hold of a, a great uh, sound artist called Jakob Kierkegaard, who's like me, is a Danish. Um, works in Berlin and he's, he's one of his specialities apart from recording sounds is that he's using these contact microphones special contact microphones and like Larry I don't want to get too technical but what happens with the contact microphone is that you record sounds through material so you put on a contact microphone on this table and then the vibrations in the material turns into a sound. So he, he brought these microphones with him to Tanzania. So he recorded several ambiences, but then the scene I'm gonna show you is um, quite special because um, in the classrooms, they have bars on their windows, like a prison. Um, in a way, it, it's a school, but it's also like almost a prison because they are not allowed to go out. And uh, when Jakob was in the classroom that day, he saw those bars and then he put on one of his contact microphones on the bar and recorded the sound of the classroom through the bars. So what you hear now in this scene is that Notice how the perspective changes so that in the, in the beginning it's, it's how it sounds in the natural room and then it turns into the sound that you hear through the bars. Um, and then on top of that, um, we wanted to create this feeling that being inside the main character, he's called Shida, he's like writing a test. So Jakob also put one of his microphones on the paper. So 
you also hear like this very, very specific sound of pencil on paper. So all you hear in this sequence are authentic sounds. But try and notice how emotional and subjective and uh, hopefully what a poetic e effect it creates. Let's play the clip. This paper consists of 20 questions. We can start. Question number one. Which of the following is the function of a skin? A, speaking. B, cover the inner part. C, protect the eyes from injury. Now, you choose which idea is the correct answer. So this is very authentic. You feel it? Very, very authentic. Now, I mean, uh, of course, I'm playing around with uh, our kind of perception of the word authenticity. But these sounds are the like authentic sounds from the room. It just depends on what, how the ear is listening and how the microphone is recording. Um, so. This idea of talking about authenticity, um, for me, it's very important that when you experience a documentary about a certain character in a certain environment, then it needs to feel right. Um, it needs to feel like we're part of this environment in on the terms of the characters. Um, but that's not necessarily the same as saying, this is how it sounded when I put my microphone out there. The thing about a microphone is that it has its own life. Like if we, if we take a microphone here and then put it out here.
like in a in a movie you would think why what what's happening why are we hearing all the air conditions why are we hearing all the lamps all the electricity why are we hearing those strange noises from all these mechanical air conditioned ventilators up there we don't want to hear it it's because this microphone is very unintelligent and um, the, the microphone is very authentic at the same time. This is how it sounds in this room. But it doesn't make the room sound the way that we want people to experience it. So instead of making the sound sound just as the sound was, then we create a sound that feels authentic for the story and for the characters we want to. So I would much rather have this. Don't listen to that up there. It's not authentic. This is authentic. So I want you to have this feeling that very close when you're listening to these small sounds, and you're not listening to that up there. So authenticity, authenticity is boring, and authenticity is amazing. I think that's my 20 minutes. See, that's why I'm not the one giving the speeches. Uh, all right, I, I finally, we have a Michelle Shelping talking about the future of sound. You've listened to an abstract of a film, documentary film, Battles by Isabel Thorner. Um, and I suppose you have an image as well. Um, when you listen, your imagination is running. Um, I did look at the screen, it was black, no reflection of light. Um, so you were condemned to use your imagination. In the film, the image is not black. So I will show you to you the, the original abstract. It's very short. Um, and maybe you can imagine that the experience and the image you have imagined while listening will merge with the image that is presented to you. And normally you're not aware of this movement of your mind and soul. 
Um, so that's why I splitted it up. Could you show the abstract with image? I think the, the sound changes the image and the image changes the sound as well. And I think that's what film is about. Um, but I was going to speak about the future of, of sound. I will fire a lot of words to you, that's why I will read. And to be honest, I have no clue about the future of sound. I would rather uh, exchange ideas about the future of sound as part of the audiovisual construction, because that's something completely different. The sound that is part of the cinematic experience. Cinematic experience with very old, incredible old, old, new and newer media, platforms, carriers and so on. I will share some thoughts on that and we can discuss that later. And there will be a lot of doubles because they <laughs> took away part of my words. As a rule, it is unnecessary to use sounds in film that one naturally associates, associates with the image, as it is unnecessary to show images of sound sources that speak for themselves. Sound and image should complement each other, but neither re-say or double the same expression. It is in the nature of the artistic process in development that we sin bravely against these rules. The new film aesthetics is still only in a nascent stage. And in many aspects, we still have to come to full clarity. The more we are going to recognize that sound and image possess their own and completely different characteristics and possibilities of expression, the more we will come to the experience that the synchronism is not the main rule to which the audible elements have to satisfy the visual elements. There are dozens of association capabilities of which the synchrone association is only one. As soon as the sound gets its own expression, sound and image will find themselves with an independent, independent rhythm in counterpoint to move freely side by side and together move the audience, as was mentioned by the other speakers as well. That's the essence. The sound film will have reached its highest degree of perfection when the masses have learned to listen to the silence. That is, to the sounds that are so high and far and thin, they are beyond our hearing, that it can only be experienced by the still glowing light within us. A long development is needed in cinema before she arrives at this stage. We have had barely, we have had barely two decades of film and we only had to deal with a few years of sound film. While in the, develop, the, the, the developmental history of an art form, a century hardly mattered. This makes me optimistic and agrees to be cautious in my judgment. We may envy later generations for the much more perfect cinema that they will know. It is not unlikely that they will envy us for the fact that we have been present at the birth of something so important as sound film. 
as you will have understood, this was besides the first couple of lines about battles, the abstract, not my text. Um, I don't know at what moment you realize that it is not my text. It was a citation of Albert Hellman, a Dutch writer who wrote a book on film sound in 1933, more than 80 years ago. Apparently, there is still a lot to gain. The future of film sound started long before yesterday, is going on today and will bring us to tomorrow. Um, now about this future. Since the, birth of art of, since the birth of the art of film, we can see a constant mutual influence of technical and creative impulses. The existence of what we call the silent film from the early days of film was not a creative wish, but rather the consequence of technical limitations. There are enough examples of technical developments that nourished the creative mind with new possibilities. As we know, this mutual influence can lead us to a lot of trendy nonsense, meaningless kicks of the senses, wrong use of new old words like immersive, surround, etc., etc. But it can also lead us to new horizons in filmic expression, as long as we realize that for getting to the top, we have to cherish and nourish the mountain, make, experiment, investigate, reflect as much as possible, listen and look. And where are we going? With the known and new technologies, our possibilities in filmic expressions will grow. It will also ask for higher demands on craftsmanship, simple craftsmanship, creative thinking, and an evolution in the process of filmmaking. Although when I listen to the other speakers, it's not an evolution. We're sort of already there, but I don't recognize it enough. How will a close-up sound a close-up sound if a 32K image is zoomed in eight times during post-production. What will a two-day image do if we are aware of the possibilities of three-day images, 3D images, and what will the screen be if we know what the inventions like the Oculus Rift will bring to cinema and cinematic experience? The question is not why not mono, as posited in, rather, in a rather humorous, humoristic way during the latest School of Sound in London. Thank you, Larry, for this incredible week every time. The better question is, in my very, very humble opinion, why not surround? If we start from all our possibilities, mono will be a creative choice instead of a technical limitation. Black and white, black and white will be a creative choice because we have the possibilities of color. 2K, 16 mil, 35 mil instead of 4K or 16K, 24 frames per second instead of 100 frames per second. We have no clue yet what all these technical possibilities will bring to us. A lot of bullshit, an incredible mountain of rubbish, but also a bunch of creative challenges. New areas to explore, new paths to the top of cinematic expression. It all depends on what you need for your filmic expression. By the way, the techniques used in surround sounds are many decades old. Maybe we are not young enough. The challenges for designing sound on the set will grow. The available techniques will make things possible like zooming in a 30K image eight times and zoom in the sound as well. Space captured outside the, outside the frame on set was already possible. Albert Hellman, 
the writer from 1933, would have loved the idea. The importance of sound design starting on set will grow further. I see more and more fiction films shot in a, what we call, documentary way, with, with respect for all sound aspects of here and now, the space, the frame, the expression. Another major challenge will be the evolution of the film-making process. Um, the other speakers have spoken about that. A couple of decades ago, we entered the area of nonlinear editing. New possibilities occurred, though it took a while to realize it was more than a time and money-saving technical development. It also took a while to realize what we had lost. Despite this nonlinear new age, the process tended to uh, stay incredible linear. Scenario, film plan, pre-production, shoot, editing, visual effects, sound edit and design, grading, mix. We will go, and you have heard, are already going towards a more non-linear process, more and more. The challenges are clear. The more non-linear the process, the bigger are creative possibilities of all aspects of filmmaking, including sound. The more we should become aware of the possibilities of expression of all the departments that are involved. And then the sum will be, the, the, the total will be more than the sum of the parts. Sound design has to start more and more in the scenario, in the film plan, and on the set. What will a set look like with six cameras that shoot, film image, that shoot images that can be reframed uh, freely during post-production? You see that happening. Where will I point my microphone? At the edge of the frame, I don't know what the edge of the frame will be. No clue. And are all DOPs, these six DOPs involved and the director aware of what sound could possibly do to the meaning and impact of the shots or series of shots? In the abstract of battles I've shown you to you earlier, sound is part of the expression of the shot. It's gathered somewhere on the set. Um, and that was only possible because the director and DOP, Frédéric Noirom, were well aware of what sound could do. This is the shortest shot in the film, and there are, I think, 20 lines of dialogue in the entire 90-minute film. Because the set sound mixer, Quintum Hulatum, was not only concerned by keeping the microphone as close as possible to the subject in the frame, but was constantly aware of the space outside the frame, of all the, of the associative challenges of the subject and what the set, in the broadest sense, had to offer him always with the deeper meaning of the film and the possibilities of expression in mind. And not in the last case, because the editor, Nico Leunen, who was editing a film rather than putting together a bunch of frames, was constantly aware of the space and time that is needed to get a filmic expression with image and sound. It's doubling, and so he created the foundation of the sound design that was started by Isabel with her awareness and sensitivity, supported by Frederick by making shots the space for sound and Quinton collecting sound design. From non-linear editing to non-linear thinking and non-linear making, the challenges are clear. Stay young, open-minded, explore and investigate new and old possibilities. Experiment and experience and stay critical towards trendy nonsense, one-dimensional kicks of the senses. Cherish and nourish the mountain to get to the top. Listen and look. Um, thank you, that was my part. I will show you one more abstract. 
of battles. Image and sound together, a little bit longer, but still far too short and out of context. Um, but now you will be prepared to what sound and image can do together. Thank you. All right, I'd like to invite all of our speakers up for the seated portion. I'm actually just curious what the, the um, composition of the audience is. I mean, how many people are, I don't know, programmers or, or how many people are, I don't know, other portions? Oh, you're all industry folk? No, or just visitors, passerbys, looking for a warm room. <laughs> Any composers? I mean, I actually thought one way to, for us to begin conversation is just to take an audience question and see what, yeah. So does anyone have any questions? Something they'd like to discuss or see discussed? Yeah, in the front here. particular interest uh, in, in making radio waves heard because uh, I'm, I'm dealing with a film about uh, increasing digital networks and I want to think about a way to personify these networks to make it heard because already it's invisible so I'm thinking about uh, making it heard so I was wondering if any of you had any ex experience with that of knew of any experiments with doing that So how do you show the invisible? How can you use sound to <coughs> show something the visual is not able to show? Um, does that work? Yeah. Um, that's a, a very difficult question, but very simple as well. Use your imagination. Apparently, there is something in your head 
um, use it as a starting point and, and start experimenting. Um, collect sounds around you that give you an association with radio waves. Um, listen to it. Um, and listen again and go out again and collect. And I think it starts um, with listening. Just listening to your world and to your imagination. To follow up on that, I think it's a good idea for all filmmakers to start listening through headphones because as Peter pointed out, the microphone doesn't do what our ears do. And you have to get used to the fact sound on a film is recorded and amplified. It's not natural sound and that's different. So it's a good idea to start just putting on headphones, get a recorder like a Zoom or something and start listening and it will lead you to exactly what Michelle is talking about. But in answer, direct answer to your question, as somebody who a director might give that question to, how are we going to do this? I would say, why do you want to? If they're invisible, why do you want to give them sound? You don't have to, you don't have to answer that. I, it would, I'm just trying to get out of work. That's Because <laughs> it's a difficult thing to do. No, because it's really about people who are fleeing from these networks because they think they are allergic to these networks. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to make a sort of show or make a hurt what they think is there and we don't see, but they experience it. Um, I can give you a little clue. There, there was a, a student who tried to um, um, turn images into sounds. And what did he do? He took an old uh, TV set and he uh, took a bunch of wires and an amplifier and he went with his bunch of wires with a um, um, coil over the image. And then he got sound. And then he realized that it was not the sound he needed, but this sound, he said, okay, that's an interesting sound for a completely different film. <laughs> Is it helpful? I, I often feel in the creative process that um, there's a tendency to know what a sound is and therefore you start thinking practically about the sound, which means that you don't think about what the sound actually does to you emotionally, but you think about what the sound is or has been or what you actually recorded. And um, I often, when in my process, if um, if possible, I, I, I'm, I'm usually just like listening through my archive of sounds and really not looking at what is this that I recorded seven years ago in the supermarket when I recorded the freezer that didn't work. Okay, suddenly it sounds like I'm standing under a roof of metal and there's something falling on top of that. And it is suddenly it's my mind and my imagination thinking instead of it's the logical side of the brain because I feel that often yeah, having that kind of approach to sound really opens up the imagination much more, I feel. Just following up on that, um, you're getting a lot of ideas here <laughs> for free. Um, <laughs> It's the idea of thinking of what the characteristics are of it. Is it predatory? Is it um, benign? 
is it fast moving? Is it like an animal? Is it like an insect? Is it something ethereal? Um, it, it, you don't want to anthropomorphize it, but you do want to think about what are these characters that it has. It's the techniques that a lot of animation sound design uses to give sound to abstract characters. They're really auditioning is what they're doing. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just thinking of the first abstract I've shown to you and this metal sounds you heard um, and how they ended up there. Um, I can tell you on my desktop there is always a, a, a folder and it's, it's called a bunch of sounds and I throw in stuff just like that. They don't have a name, they just have numbers. I remember from time to time uh, automatically and throw in new sounds. And I, when I'm looking at the shot, I just throw in something and look what happens to the shot. And I can tell you this sounds, sound ended up there and it started in editing because the editor is a guy uh, like that and he just throw in and it ended up there and he said, it's just an idea. And then Quinton, the sound, is that no, I made beautiful recordings of the metal and I will give them to you. And I listened to all of them, but it didn't do what this was doing. And then I tried to change the timing and it didn't work either. So just collect sounds, throw them in, look at the shot and see what happens. Yeah, <laughs> we covered that one. <laughs> uh, anyone else? Uh, in the back, yeah. Please wait for the mic. Hello. Um, I'm currently working on a project uh, which is set in a very noisy and, and, and sound-rich um, uh, city. Um, and I'm also playing with the idea with the use of silence and disjointed sound. Uh, I was just wondering if you worked with that kind of frame of, um, of mind in regarding to sound, and what's your experience on that? Uh, the, 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 the place, the environment I'm shooting, it's very noisy, and also uh, there's, there's a lot of different sounds. Um, so my idea is, is more, uh, rather than applying a, um, a true sound, a faithful sound, is more to work with the disjointed sound as well as use of silence. And I don't know if something has been done before, if it's something that you, have in your own experience, have, have dealt with. <laughs> yes. Um, First of all, it, it's a very common problem. People shooting out on streets, if you shoot in any big city, you have this problem. And I think you have to know that when you start out, this is what you're going to get. Um, you can't get rid of that kind of noise. Are, are you doing interviews on the street or things like that? No, no, what I'm referring to is more, is more to use the sound, which I record separately, okay. uh, and use it throughout the film mm. without Necessarily seeing or you know the the, 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 the nature the, the the nature of the sound. I mean, I think what I would do is start working with it. Don't think about it. Just you know, take a shot, put your sound on, take it off. What's the difference? What's it doing to you as a viewer? 
What do you want the audience to get? Um, the idea of taking out sound is it's a, a, a tried and true technique. Uh, there are different ways of doing it. You know, you can take it out slowly. You can take out one layer at a time. You can cut it hard. What happens if you're looking at the scene with your sound and suddenly the sound goes? Something else comes in. Watch the films of Godard. Um, very common technique that he uses. He, he doesn't believe in the reality of the sound and the image going together. So play with it. Just play with it all you can. I worked on a film called London, which we did all, it, it's a documentary about London that's filmed over a period of a year, but no, no sound was recorded during the filming. And I had to go back and replace the sound with a certain amount of authenticity. But the director said, I want it to sound like London after the bomb has fallen. I don't want real London. So then we have to start playing with that. What's real London? What does that sound like? What does that do to the way we view the images? And when we start taking away that sound to make it quieter, to make it more like maybe London in 1950, what does that do to the way we look at the images? And it was quite interesting what it does do and what it does to the, the way you feel time passing. No, London is, is one of the films that I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting inspired by, so it's, it's very, it's very uh, nice to have you Don't in the room here. <laughs> no, I won't, I won't. I, I, I did the same with, with Maidan, uh, Los Nijos Maidan. They forgot to wake up sound. And uh, I think it was, you tried to recreate something that was already there. So for me, it was very difficult. People didn't realize they were listening to a reconstruction. You mean the Loznitsa movie, you say? Huh? Which movie are you saying? Uh, Maidan. The Ma Los Sergei Loznitsa movie? Yeah. Oh, wow, that was not, that was all reconstructed? Yeah. Wow, okay. Because, I mean, this is, maybe some of you have seen this, this movie about, like, street protests in Ukraine, and, I mean, you feel like you are there, so. No, not enough. Hats off. To my <laughs> humble opinion, it's not good enough. Oh, well. Um, but, I mean, this No, is, but, but, but may I w oh, ask yes, sure. one question? Or, or uh, give one advice. The noise, are you shooting already? Put a microphone, at least put a microphone in your camera so you have the sync sound and you can choose what kind of microphone you put there. And, and following uh, Larry's advice, putting things on and off, put the sync sound on on a certain moment and think what does the synchronism bring to the image or doesn't it bring anything? Because it can also always be, as noisy as it is, a layer of your construction which it gives a movement to the audience towards the place and outside. So these are all kind, kind of things to play with. I wish we had three microphones. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but, oh, that's great. Um, going back to something somebody said, um, sound will change the image. So depending on the density of what you put on, we will see different layers of the image. With London, we had very, very specifically framed images, 35 millimeter, no camera movement, long duration, and they're stunning images. And we tried to use library sound or just wild tracks over it, and it didn't work because the sound wasn't specific enough. So we had to start, as everybody's explained, building up a soundtrack 
that was as carefully composed as the images were to get the right feel for the film. Otherwise, uh, something would have been lost. Yes. Make choices. Mm. And also, don't be afraid of noise, actually. I think, like, sometimes there's this uh, hesitation towards... I, I mean, I remember a director coming to me and saying, Peter, I made this, all these... Um, I've sh shot this story in this, but it's taking place in this garden. There's so many birds. There's noises from the outside. There's noises from the neighbor. I mean, what can we do? There's, there's nothing to do. And then I said, well... Let, let's have a listen and let's just see what that tells us. And then we experienced that and then we went with that and then we added more noises. And then we had moments where we took away all the sounds and made small intimate moments with small quiet sounds, which had a tremendous effect. So sometimes with noise, noise isn't just noise. If you add layers and use the sounds in a descriptive, imaginative way, then the noises turn into a language of its own. It's, it all comes down, it's quite boring, to, to what Larry said in his first speech. What does it make you feel? Uh, it's really the essence of what you're doing. Throw in things, take things out, and how does it make you feel? Huh. It's cheap, eh? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if I add even more it, it gets even more confusing I'm trying to to subtract sound rather than adding uh, otherwise I can't uh, really separate and, and guide the audience towards the sound that I want um, that's why I'm, I'm thinking of, of not using the actual sound but using sounds which I shot on, on different uh, shots which will refer back to that image so mm. the, the the audience can hear the sound, that can recognize that sound coming from another shot. And that way I, I'd like to, to see if it works by separating them. So y you see an image and you don't necessarily um, yep. link to, 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 to an image or a sound. Mm. And that's why also silence might be a solution to, to gradually switch from that. One last comment about that um, is that Think about yourself as a performer. You are talking to the audience. Don't think of yourself as a filmmaker with a lot of tools and tricks. No, I only have two microphones. <laughs> oh, that's okay. You and only one need camera. one. <laughs> but no, what I mean is make sure the personal is in your film. Um, very quickly... I was looking up a website of a friend of mine from the States from many years ago. He's a documentary filmmaker in Paris. His name is David Turacamo. Look him up. He, and he talks about making documentaries. He says, get the shot you want and then put the sound on it that says what you want to say. And if you can start at that basic level, this will all start making more sense, I think. We, we tend to get complicated very quickly. Um, so think of yourself as talking to the audience. What sound do you want, when? Well, let's go. I think this woman over here had her hand up. Yeah. Uh, I want to know more about the contact microphone. Uh, I 
found the sound very uncomfortable. I uh, became nervous and aggressive, and I want to know why. Well, it wasn't the intention to make you aggressive, but uh, it, sure, it sure is a special way of hearing sounds because it's not the way that we hear normally. I mean, you can feel that the, the way the sounds, uh, sound is different from, the, from what we're used to. And that can make us uncomfortable. It can also makes, make us more like intrigued uh, I think it's very interesting when you start working with sounds in a way that you're not used to hearing them because then suddenly you're becoming aware of the emotional potential of the sounds in a way that you're not, um, that, that if you just hear them in their usual context, so to say. And I really like this way that that's suddenly these sounds turned into something else. For me, it was the sounds that were inside the boy's head. Um, but at the same time, when working with sounds in this more abstract way, the thing is also that each of us will have a different perception of how that, what that sound means to us. It's such a, I mean, that's something about sound that's very fascinating. It's so, so personal. Um, but the intention wasn't to make you aggressive, but it was sure to create a, a special environment or a special feeling. I, I think it has to do with culture and, and language that we develop when people come in, would sit in here that never heard um, people speaking to a microphone and sounds coming from a different place than the speaker, I think they will be very aggressive. You see me speak here and you hear me from there, which is quite crazy. I think all this, we because, and you know, you've heard this before, you know the context, you know what it does to you. So it's the cultural and language part of what sound does is huge besides it. So the, the, the aggression can, can have come from yeah. this not known, uh, what am I listening to? What's going on? And maybe from inside, what do I experience? Eh? Sometimes I look, I listen to a sound which makes me aggressive, not because of the sound, but because of it's something moving inside me that I don't want to be moved past it. I want to be to stay still. So a, a technical approach is possible. Up here in the front. Thank you. Um, most of the films that I've seen recently here at IDFA and elsewhere um, have uh, cello music or synthesizer, uh, either showing de in moments showing desolate landscapes or intense, uh, supposedly emotional moments of interviews. Uh, I think you know what sounds I'm, I'm referring to, the kind of the stock, uh, intense grating nails on chalkboard or something like that. And, and I find, especially the more expensive and professional the production is, the more likely it is to have that, uh, especially for my country, uh, the United States, uh, I think. And I, I guess my question is, do you think that's a fad? Uh, 
I feel it's reached the point where a film like the one I'm working on that doesn't have those sounds, not because of an idea of authenticity or purity, but just because I don't like those sounds, uh, it almost isn't taken seriously as a professionally edited film anymore, at, at, at least now. And I, I was wondering your opinion about that. Thank you. We agree with you. Um, and this is, it's an illness that pervades the industry and it's terribly old fashioned. We were talking about this at lunch and I was saying this reminded me when I was just out of film school in the 70s, um, I was working on a corporate film and the idea was every 30 seconds or minute you had a different kind of music come in. <laughs> and this went away for a while and then you got you know, you get different styles at different times. In the UK, there was a period with no music in documentaries. Um, then, from my experience, I don't know about the other guys, but it was the influence of the Discovery Channel, I'm afraid to say, our, our country, um, that started saying our documentaries have music and we're putting money into your documentaries, you will have music. It was very insidious, but it happened over a period of time and it's gotten more and more. And now it's like documentaries have to be like fiction films. So we have to have these big soundtracks. And it's awful, absolutely awful. And one of the biggest complaints to the BBC is music on documentaries. People are saying, why is it there? Why is it there? Whose fault is it? I'll calm down now. No, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a subject that's really touched. <laughs> it's ignorant. Struck a nerve here. I, I think it comes from, from a feeling like, uh, 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 like uh, discovery, but in general, um, people who put money in film say it should move and music moves, so put in music because then the film will move. No, the music will move. And of course it moves. Um, so, uh, and I'm not against music that you should use what you think that serves your film and your story and um, that what you want to move in your audience. So this industry, trendy nonsense, bullshit. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I, I think I think it's also uh, uh, it's also a question about the process, because what often happens um, in the picture editing is that you haven't got the sounds yet. So instead of if you want a um, a moment that's more like atmospheric, then you think well let's put in this music, and then the first time you put on the music you think. It's not very good, but uh, let's just keep it. We need kind of a moment here to breathe. Then the third time you see it, ah, that's, that music is actually okay. And then the fifth time, well, it's really good. And then the tenth time, it's like, I'll never get rid of this. This is amazing. <laughs> and uh, that means that when you're then in the sound and you actually had the chance to remove the music and made a like, evocative soundscape there, then you're so attached to the music that you can't get rid of it. And I think that's a really big problem. So that for me is also one of the reasons why it's 
really important to have your sound person attached early on to the project. And it doesn't mean that the sound designer has to work full time while you're picture editing. It means that you have a, a sequence where you think we need a reflective moment here. Okay, send it to your sound person, make him or her do like half a day of sound design on that sequence, S come back, bring it back, and then suddenly it opens up in a very different way and you don't need to put in the music to kind of have that moment of breathing there. Just to follow that up, I heard a documentary director from the BBC talking about this and he said, uh, I know the BBC gets complaints about music, but he said, you know, if I'm sitting in an editing room for five weeks, I get really bored and then suddenly we put music on and it's like, hey, it's really good now. The film's, you know, reborn. So he said, there's that. It's a bit like what you were saying. It's, it's seductive. It's always the new thing. And everybody goes, well, that's great. Let's, let's leave that for a while. And it gets stuck. It, it's sensitivity to this. And I'm afraid we all work with some people who aren't very sensitive. Thank you very much. My name is Hafiz Imran. I am a journalist from Pakistan based in uh, Sweden. My question is uh, longer. I don't know how I can summarize. Do we have uh, uh, ethics when we use sound? Because we have uh, two sounds. One is a natural, one lyrics by using music instrument because the idfa and you know, filmmaker, when we talk about non-fictions and documentary, mostly filmmaker, they use lyrics background sound by raising, viewer, raising viewers feelings and emotions. So I think so, we play with the viewers feelings and emotion. What do you say? Because I try to find, uh, I didn't find any kind of uh, ethics when we use, because we give message to the public. Why we play public's feelings and emotions by using lyrics, because the pictures, and as you also said, uh, we get message by pictures. Object is silent, and uh, natural sound give us some message. But when we use sounds, lyrics, we play with the viewers. And uh, what would you like to say, because I want to hear from you and uh, here is also filmmakers. So yeah, and, you, and you mean like my lyric, you mean like poetic effects? Yeah, yeah. Okay, poetic, yeah. Right. Uh, we're, we're actually going to be wrapping up soon, so this will be the last question, I think. But it's a really important um, issue. Um, I think as a filmmaker, you always play, but play is the wrong word. You you try to move the audience with all the filmic means you have, and for me. Everything is okay as long as long as it serves your message, your idea of moving the audience. Um, I, th I think the most important thing: how does it feel for you? Is it for you ethical to do it? Does it bring your message, your emotion, to the audience? And then it's okay when it's just playing around with emotion. Then it becomes. But when it has, the, the essence is your, what, what, your story, your message, 
and everything is fine, then we shouldn't distinguish too much on what you use for it. Within all these filmic muse, and uh, quite a lot, the sound music, the poetry, ev everything you want, everything, you can film paintings and use them to tell your story. Your authenticity mm. is the measure. All right, I think, uh, I think that we're coming to the end now here, unless any of you had any final thoughts you wanted to add or? I've got one final thought that comes up through all of this, the future, authenticity, emotion, and I think you just touched on it, uh, Michelle, is that you have, to, uh, you have to be ethical and you have to be honest. Um, accuracy, realism, those are funny terms, but don't lie. And I, and I'm sure everybody here has been in a situation where you've used sound or you've been asked to use sound to bend the truth. And I think that's what you have to protect against. At one time, editors were the last line of ethical defense in documentaries. There would be editors who will say, I would not cut this because that's a lie. You're putting something down that isn't true. You're doing it through editing. And now I think sound people have to be the same. Music might be part of this too, that we're just giving, we're just uh, uh, telling something that isn't true. We're giving the wrong impressions. And I think you know that when you're working with a director, how far you can go. But I would just ask all of you to be careful about that. There are instances that come up and we don't have time now to talk about where you know a sound effect can be put on an image to give the impression of something that didn't exist. And now we get into what's a documentary. Um, big subject. <laughs> yeah, sounds real, yeah. Well, next time. <laughs> thank you, thank you, we really appreciate it.